When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord, when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Hormah. Most journeys don't involve going in a straight line from point A to point B. There are usually twists and turns along the way. Sometimes we blow it and have to make a fresh start. So how can we get it right in our journey with Christ? There is a book in the Old Testament that can really help. We are in the book of Numbers, which you just heard this morning's passage read to you. And we are in the process of uh, embarking on a journey with Israel in order to pull from that account lessons that we can use in our current journey with the Lord. Can you imagine what it was like for Job? He lost everything. He lost his livelihood, his property, and his family sons and daughters. I, I cannot imagine what that would be like. His friends gathered around him. They were silent for seven days. That was a good start. They should have stayed there. But instead, what they said to him was, Job, it is quite obvious there is sin in your life, and that's why this is happening. That was not true. The truth is, which this is amazing for me to contemplate, Job did not go through what he did simply because the adversary said, I'm going to do a number on Job. It started when God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? In other words, God said, I am confident what this man is capable of. I know him. Satan says, you don't know him. If I take away everything, he'll curse you. And God said, I'm giving you permission to do that because God knew his man, knew what was in him. And Job did not curse God. In fact, Satan came back for round two and he said, well, yeah, but if I take his health away, that's really all that was left to him. God said, by implication, I know my man. The reason Job was going through all of this was not because God was mad at him or disappointed with him. He was actually going through this because God was proud of him and knew who he was 
and what would happen. Now, one of the things that Job did when he went through this trial is he actually did a self-assessment. And in Job 5, 17, it says this, behold how happy is the man whom God (laughs) reproves. Now, this is Job talking. How happy is the man whom God reproves, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Now, there's basically what he's saying is, I want to examine what has happened in order to learn whatever I can learn that will help me understand how I can better live for God. (laughs) That's who this amazing man was. And by chapter six, he's completed that inventory, he's done that self-assessment, and he says this, and I love this verse, but it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain Truly, it was unsparing pain, and yet he says, I rejoice in it. (laughs) And you would say, and your reason is, here it is, that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. That was, God knew his man. His man went through horrible things, hard things. And he looked within, and he came away saying, I am confident that I have done right by the Lord. Now, there was an issue that comes up later in the book that God deals with, which is Job later says, God, would you please explain to these people why this is happening? (laughs) And it moved to a point where he was kind of calling God on the carpet. But there was another round of conversation between he and the Lord. We won't get into that this morning. What I want you to see is that when Job encountered hardship, challenge, he looked inside because he wanted to see, all right, what is this saying about what might be going on in my life? Job did a self-assessment and came up with nothing because, in point of fact, this trial was not a product of God's disapproval. It was actually a product of God's approval. Yes, in the end, there was something that Job needed to learn and God taught him something. And then in Job 42, 7, God speaks to the friends after Job has learned, you don't call God to account. And he says, for this reason, my wrath is kindled against, he's speaking to Eliphaz, the Temanite. For this reason, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Job got it right. (laughs) You guys haven't. The book of Job actually raises a question that is relevant to every one of us in this room, which is how do we process setbacks, hardships, limitations, challenges? I'm reasonably confident in this room that there are many of you. I don't know if it's all, but many of you, and because I will include myself, many of us who are facing, dealing with hard things. What would you put in the journey challenge category right now? What are you facing that is making you say, why God, (laughs) why are you doing this? What a wonderful question at least to ask it of God, and 
Our passage this morning is going to help everyone who's asking that question gain some insight into how to process and how to get an answer to that question. Now, thus far, in our journey through the book of Numbers, we have learned four principles. God is our difference maker, which is basically a way of saying, with me, without me. God's grace is our protection. God's kindness is what serves as our safe place. We've learned that God's gifts are good. When the spies came back, two of them got it right and they said, this is a great gift. (laughs) Now, the majority report, the 10 spies says, yeah, that's all well and good, but, and they gave the negative report, God's gifts are good. And then in our last sermon in this series, which I realized was about a month ago, uh, we learned God has a lesson for us. You can learn it the easy way or you can learn it the hard way. Choose the easy way. And this morning, we're going to learn about how brokenness is good. So let's get our context. Let's uh, remind ourselves of where we are. At the wilderness of Paran, Israel made a stupid decision for the record books. And the first day we looked at was the day that the spies returned. That was day one. Then day two is when Israel said no to God. We're not going to take the land. And now on day three, which we just heard the passage, Israel wants a (laughs) do-over. They want to go at it again. Now remember the purpose of numbers. Paul has explained this to us from 1 Corinthians. He says... Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened to them as an example. God did what he did, not just for them, but in order to create an example that can instruct us. And he says, and they were written for our instruction. The book of Numbers was actually written for us, upon whom the end of the ages have come, in order to understand how to make good decisions Have you ever thought about the fact that grace actually sometimes leads to mourning, to sadness? I mean, we think of God's grace as something that causes us to celebrate and go, wow, this is so awesome what God has done. Listen to this passage uh, from Zechariah in which God talks about, I'm going to pour out grace on Israel and as a result they are going to be mourning <laughs> and that's a grace thing <laughs> all right here's the passage he says in Zechariah 12:10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication this is describing something that is going to happen in the future God is actually going to pour out grace kindness favor on Israel and then here's the result clause so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn it is going to be a future event in which God actually gives a gift to Israel in which they are broken-hearted as they see Jesus, whom they have crucified. 
and realize we have gotten this so wrong. And that's a gift from God. It's a gift when he shows us, he opens our eyes to the fact that something we have done makes him sad. Ooh, reminds me of something. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Meaning, blessed are those who are sad by the things that make God sad. They will be comforted. Brokenness is actually attractive to God. Listen to this passage. This is Psalm 51, 16, and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. This is David talking. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God loves genuine brokenness, a people who are humbled and broken before him. That's valuable. That's a treasure. And this morning's passage can actually teach us about the grace gift of brokenness And it can help us discern one essential principle about how to respond to difficulty. Now, when I say responding to difficulty, I want you to understand that difficulty, hard things, difficult circumstances, some of them are consequences from sin. But understand the some of them part. Not all, but some of them are. And in this particular passage, we're going to look at difficulties that are sin produced and see what the protocol is that God is prescribing recognizing that when we encounter difficulties and hardships that are not sin produced there are some other steps that we would use so anyway we'll get into that as we're going along all right here's the outline of the passage that we're looking at the first is the trouble with tears in verse 39 they're coming with tears but tears can be deceptive Then we'll look at the trouble with me. And by the way, that's not the trouble with me. (laughs) Um, That's the trouble with me in all of us. And then the benefits of consequences in verse 45. So let's jump in with the trouble with tears. So on the day before this day that we're reading about, here's what the Lord had said to them in Numbers 14, verses 28 and 29. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to the complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. So the spies came back with their report. Two of them said, it's a great gift. Let's go take it. The Lord is with us. Ten said, no, we're all going to be defeated. And so on the next day, they mourned all through the night. They were crying through the night and grumbling during the night. And on the next day, they said, we're not gonna do it. Let's appoint a leader who will take us back to Egypt. It'd be better for us if we were to all die in the wilderness than go try and take this land. Which is what happens then. God says, okay, you think a preferable outcome is for you to die in the wilderness? I will give you what you prefer. You will die in the wilderness. When Moses spoke the words, these words to all the sons of Israel, this is verse 39, the people mourned greatly. The people are crying. The people are broken and sad. 
but not because of something they see in their hearts. They're broken and sad because of the loss of something. Uh, a good illustration, uh, I think, that would help capture this is uh, maybe you've experienced this in the discipline of small children. Now, I realize that for some of you, you maybe are, uh, did not use spanking as a tool for child training. In our home, we did. Uh, when it was warranted and in a way that's guided by the principles of Musar, which someday we'll teach you about that, I guess. And uh, you could tell if you were administering discipline to a child by the tone of their cry what you were dealing with. And I'm going to illustrate it for a moment, all right? <laughs> that's a mad cry, right? And then there's, <laughs> that's a sad cry. What's the difference? The former is the crying of a child who is basically saying, you know, they're crying, they don't like what's happening, and they blame you for what's happening. Who are you to dare to, now they couldn't articulate all this, but who are you to dare me to, to discipline me? Whereas the latter is a submissive cry of a child who is just sad that they've done what they have. Israel right now is mad crying. They are mad at God for saying no to something, which is so ridiculous, isn't it? They didn't want to go. They said it'd be better for us if we all died in the wilderness. God says, okay, die in the wilderness. And now they're mourning. They're not mourning about this. They're not saying, wow, I have come to see something in my heart that's not good. There is something wrong with me. And then come to God. Tears and repentance are not the same. Listen to this passage from Hebrews 12. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who, said, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected. But he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. He was crying over a loss. He was crying because of what he had forfeited. But it was not crying that led to repentance. Repentance is where you're basically saying, I see what I have done through the eyes of God and recognize it as bad, and I am broken for the fact that I did this. He had tears, he had sorrow, but it was not sorrow that leads to repentance which is what's happening with Israel. They are sad, but they're mad at God. Here's an instance where the sorrow and the repentance work together. This is from 2 Corinthians. Apparently, Paul uh, confronted the Corinthian believers. He said, church, there's something you're doing that's not right. That has to change. And he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, 
I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. I'm not happy that you were sad and broken and mourning, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. The Corinthians, their tears led to repentance. In other words, there's something about me that needs to change. There's something that is not right. Those are very different kinds of tears. These are tears because they see something inside of themselves that needs to change. The city of Nineveh is such a contrast with Israel in this passage that we're looking at. And I thought it would be interesting to read this, particularly because of the contrast between Nineveh and America. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And then get this. Imagine hearing this from our leaders. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. What would it be like to witness something like that? Nineveh experienced it from the person who was the working class, and it actually started with them, all the way to the king of Nineveh, this city, state, and empire. There was genuine brokenness. God, through Jonah, who I think was kind of a, <laughs> he wasn't a winsome representative. He was not interested in their repentance. He was coming because God told him to, and he said, all right, I want to let you know, 40 days, and then God's going to blast you. Have a good day. <laughs> As you can tell from chapter 4, where he's sitting under a bush and complaining to God and saying, I, you know, I knew you were going to do this. <laughs> and yet these people, even though the message was delivered poorly, they actually said, something's wrong with us. Something needs to change. And from groundswell all the way to the one in authority, he's saying, call on God. We need to plead with God. And every one of us needs to make a 180 degree change in how we're living. And we need to stop doing what is hurtful to one another. Who knows? I don't know whether God's going to do anything or not, but I do know that he's not going to change if we don't change. Let's change. And maybe, just maybe, God will turn. Wow, what would this be like if this happened in our time? I don't know that it will. But that would be so amazing, wouldn't it? Nineveh's mourning fueled change. Yes, they were rattled by the prospect of what God announced he would do. But the people of Nineveh believed God. In the passage we're looking at, Israel did not. They called a fast. 
Israel didn't call a fast. They complained about the menu. <laughs> they called on God. Israel complained against God. They turned from wickedness. Israel, no change. What a contrast in how they responded. Here's what God did in response to Nineveh. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Nineveh used 40 days to change God's heart. God had to use 40 years to change Israel's heart. When God gives consequences, don't fixate on the consequences. That's what Israel was doing. Use your pain and disappointment to fuel true brokenness and ask this question. What have I learned about what might be wrong with me? Now, when I say consequences, what I mean is negative outcomes that are the product of sin. And I need to ask the question, is there something that this is showing me that needs to change? I can think of a couple examples that are relevant. One is, Rochelle and I, in our first year of marriage, now this is a while ago, uh, we will uh, next December celebrate 50 years together. But uh, in our first year of marriage, I remember that we had one of those fights that was awful. I don't remember what it was about. We were yelling. I won't speak about her. I'll just speak about me. I was yelling and eventually stomped out of the house and went. I didn't know what I was thinking, but I was out walking around somewhere in North Tacoma, Washington. <laughs> eventually, Rochelle showed up with the car and said, get in, and we reconciled. But... Um, we came back and we had a discussion in which we talked about how we can never go there again. And we, we learned something about how even when we disagree, we can't allow that disagreement to become this forest fire that just burns a marriage. And we had to make a change. Israel is not doing that. This incident in which God says, you're not ready yet to go into the land should have prompted them to do some self-examination where they say, maybe there's something not right inside of me. Instead, they think, look, we're good. We can go take the land. Instead of thinking, what is there about me that is not as it should be? Let me give you kind of a matrix of how to deal with hard things. Now, let me put what's going on in this passage into the bigger picture. When we encounter hardship, difficulty, challenges, the first question to ask is, are these consequences for sin? Is there something I have done that is dishonoring to God that is contributing to this outcome? You may come up with a yes then thank God for consequences and deal with the hard issues that he reveals. 
It is possible that your answer is no. In fact, I think more often than not, the answer is gonna be no. I've searched, is there something I am doing that is not honoring to God? And that's what's leading to this. Then you move to the trial response protocol. And I'll go into that in more detail, I'm sure sometime later, but you can go to James 1, which says uh, when you encounter various trials, that you need to go through a certain exercise. That's what you do with them. And basically it's thank God, thank him when you're going through trials, trust the father filter. What I mean by that is we have a good father and he handpicks what is appropriate for us to have to face. And he doesn't let anything through that is beyond our ability to prevail with his help. So I'm gonna trust the father filter and then I'm gonna identify some growth targets. What are the areas where he wants to work on me? Those are the, that's the process and I realize I'm just giving that to you in very quick form but that's the process if you're dealing with something that is not the product of sin. But here we're talking about difficulty, hardship, challenge in which you ask this question, are there ways in which I am doing something that does not honor the Lord that this is identifying for me? Well, then I need to deal with that. I need to thank God for the circumstances, even though they're painful. And then I need to deal with whatever it is. And this is not just an Israel thing. This is actually something that Paul said to the church in Corinth. He said, for this reason, some among you sleep, some among you are sick, some of you even sleep. In other words, there's a sin issue that has not been addressed. Address it. We of all people need to be those who are not afraid to ask this question, which is, based on what I'm facing currently, is it possible there is something in my life that is not what it needs to be? And I'm not afraid of that question. Israel was afraid of that question. But I'm not going to be afraid of that question. And you aren't either. Here's what happened next. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went to the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are. <laughs> well, we've indeed sinned. Yes, we've sinned. But we'll go up to the place which the Lord has promised. We're, we're ready to do this now. But Moses said, why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord who says, don't go up, who instead has said, you will die in the wilderness when it will not succeed. Don't go up or you will be struck down before your enemies for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you and you will fall by the sword inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord. See, there's the key. That's the core problem that they've not addressed and the Lord will not be with you. And they went up heedless to the ridge of the hill country, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. The trouble with me, the people can admit, yeah, yeah, we, we sinned. Uh, that, that probably was not a good thing that we said to you yesterday, but they're not facing the core problem, which is they've fallen into the Eliphaz trap. Remember that passage I quoted you from Job? Then the Lord said to uh, Eliphaz the Temanite and the two friends, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right. 
you have chosen to entertain a false notion of me. Yesterday, they didn't believe they could take the land when God was with them. Today, they think they can no problem when God is not with them. In other words, they don't recognize the only way you're going to be able to do this is with me. With me. They think that God, this is their core lie that they are believing, they think that God is irrelevant to their success. It's just about us. Hey, if we decide, you know, we believe in ourselves. And if we believe in ourselves enough, we can go take the land and we'll be just fine. Foolish words. You think that success is about you? <laughs> you think that God is irrelevant to your success? That's your problem. You know, one of the things we did in the training of our children, uh, which I think it's interesting that several child training anecdotes are coming up, but one of the things we taught our children is that delayed obedience is disobedience. This is delayed obedience that's going on. Uh, basically, what they're saying is, yeah, 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 we didn't do it yesterday, but and, and th that was a mistake. And they don't say why it was a mistake. They don't say that was a mistake because we believe the lie about you. It was, that's a mistake because, yeah, we, I guess we really do have the power to do this. Their delayed obedience was disobedience. And for Israel, it's a form of pride. When we think it's about us, our talent, our ability, our strength, we will fail. No amount of believing in yourself is going to change the fact that if you are not doing what you're doing specifically because God has told you, you will fail. Remember what it says, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Just imagine, if you would, trying to push something. Let's say it's a big rock. And on the other side of this rock is God, who, by the way, doesn't need both hands. He can just, you know, put up a hand or even just a finger. Do you think you're going to be able to move that rock? God resists the proud. But God gives grace to the humble. They are proud. They think it's all about them. And it's not going to work. Walk pleasing to God, you will prevail. Defy God. I mean, walk pleasing and you will prevail. Defy God, you will fail. We read this at the very, very beginning of the sermon. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. They seem oblivious to the fact that a persistent pattern of defiance indicates a much bigger problem. They've got a heart of pride, and it won't end well. God has announced, you're going to reap what you have sown. You've said, it would be better if we do this. They should have done what we've talked about. Do some self-examination. Say, wow. What is wrong in my heart? There's something that's not as it should be. 
When we encounter a challenge, it's appropriate to ask, what am I seeing inside of me? Now, not every trial is about sin. The majority are not, but there are going to be some. There are ways in which we encounter things that are a product of our disobedience, and we need to be willing to ask the question, when I hit that brick wall, what is this telling me about what is in my heart? Help me, God. Show me ways in which you see something. And you have, out of love, really, given me this roadblock so that I can look at something inside of me and deal with it. Consequences are not hate or rejection. They actually express love. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's what he was doing with Israel. Even when we encounter consequences, we can affirm God is doing this for my best because he wants me to be able to address something that he knows is not good. When Israel actually went into the land, God showed in a recall that uh, this is actually a passage, Deuteronomy 29, in which Moses is looking back on this 40-year period. And he says, I see trace marks of God's love all over this. Here's what he says. Uh, this is God talking through Moses. I led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You've not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. Now, bread, clothes repair, drink, all of those are labor intensive. You know, in order to produce bread, you have to grow wheat, and then you have to harvest it, and then you have to process it, and then you prepare it, and you cook it in an oven. Uh, same with drink. You have to grow grapes, and then you have to process them, and then you create the wine. Basically, and the wardrobe thing, you know, <laughs> they had uh, a closet. I don't know if it was a closet or what it was, but anyway, they had a clothes trunk, a suitcase, in which they had clothes that they have been wearing for 40 years. And they look as good on year 40 as they did when they first bought them at the store in Egypt. How does that happen? God was good. God loved his people and sustained them all through this journey while they learned a hard lesson, which is the problem is with me. And because I am thinking things of God that are not true, I have encountered consequences. So what did they do next? Then the Amalekites, the Canaanites who lived in that hill country, came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Their campaign to take the land without God ended in abject failure. In fact, later in Deuteronomy, when Moses is recalling what happened, he says, the Amorites chased you as bees do. <laughs> you are like running from a, a bunch of bees who've been aroused from their hornet's nest. They had two options, attempt to take the land without God, die, or wander in the wilderness and live. And they would live in an inhospitable place you can go live in the wilderness where there is none of the stuff that sustains life, but I will sustain you. And that 38 extra years in their wilderness camping 
experience may not have seemed like a benefit, but God was doing something very valuable in them. He provided an extended learning experience that worked Israel's good. I want to talk about the power of regret. Ronnie mentioned it in a sermon from last week. I think that regret is a product of growth. For example, I can look back now on things I did in my 20s or whatever, and I can go, what were you thinking? Because I'm now seeing what I did and what I said through the eyes of someone who is hopefully older and wiser. I wonder what it was like for Israel. Did they talk to their kids? They certainly had reason for regret. Maybe their children and grandchildren could learn from the bitter experience and succeed where their parents failed. And they would have been great teachers to be able to say, you know, let me tell you what happened 38 years ago. Oh, Grandpa, we've heard that story before. Yeah, but you need to make sure you hear it. We didn't go in the land because we thought it was all about us instead of recognizing that God is our difference maker and trusting him. And we weren't ready for the blessing. But you can be ready for the blessing. And God sustained them. You know why we're eating? You know why my clothes don't wear out? Because God's being good to us so that you can be vibrant, healthy, alive, and learn from my mistake and go in and take the land. He prepared their children, God did, to do what the parents did not. Frankly, I can't think of a greater grace. I would love for our children, here's another parenting point, I would love for our children to do a way better job raising their children than we have. Israel, children and grandchildren, the ones we said would be slaughtered if they went into the land, they're going to be the ones who take it, and they're going to be the ones who take it because they do what their parents and grandparents didn't. Here's what happened according to Joshua. He says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. In other words, all those promises to dad and to grandpa, everything's happened. All that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Get this, not one of the good promises which he had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass and the children and grandchildren who learned from the foolish mistake of their parents enjoyed the benefit of it. Brokenness is good. Israel was not broken. But we show, or we see in this passage, that after you've made a wrong choice, you've done something that was not right, don't excuse yourself by blaming God. Use your pain to fuel self-examination And see if you can see, is there a place where sin has produced this? Repent and determine, I want to do better, God, with your help. Humble yourself before God and leverage consequences into a powerful motivation for change. You know, when we take communion, we ask people to to take some time to look inside your hearts. 
This is a piece of what is involved for us to be able to just in the quietness of our own hearts be able to say, God, is there anything in my life that I'm currently experiencing because there's something in me that needs to change? Well, I realize we're not having communion this morning, but I would love for us to close the service by having a time like that. Listen to this passage. I I think I read it to you earlier, but here it is again. You do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I'd give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So what I want to do is I'm going to pray for you, but as I do, then I would like just a a time of quiet in which you basically say, God, based on what I'm facing right now, is there anything in me that is not as it should be? I want to hear whatever you want to tell me. Search me. See if there's anything inside of me that is not as it should be. And if your answer to that question is uh, silence, then you're ready to say, well, then show me how to grow and become a better person through things that are not consequences of sin, but challenging circumstances that I'm facing. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm just going to give you a time of quiet. Then the band will come, and they have something for us. But the goal is for this to be a time in which you simply talk to the Lord and say, God, is there anything you see in me that needs to change? You ready? All right, I'll pray for you, and then you go before the Lord. Father, we are so grateful for your many gifts. We don't often recognize it, but consequences are a gift. Limitations are a gift. Hindrances are a gift. Because these are vehicles by which we can see something, hopefully, that you already see, that you know it's time for us to see. And so I pray that in the next few moments that you would help each person in this room to see whatever it is you want them to see, that they and that I might become more the people you want us to be. We dedicate these next few moments as a time of simple reflection and saying, God, what do you see? Show it to me.